Come on up onto the front pew, guys. <clears throat> we have a lot of kids today. Let's see. Abby, Sue. No, got them backwards. Annabelle, Ronan. Oh, my brain's not working. What's your first name? Bristol. Bristol. And your name, first name is? Oh, thank you. I'm sorry? Selah. Selah. And this is Abby Sue. And this is Matthew. And this is Ivan. And this is Lucy. And this is Shane. And I am Pastor Bob. And I have a question for you. Do you know what the word sin means? What is a sin? I'm sorry? When you sin in your heart, maybe? Okay. When you do something bad. When you do something that God is not happy about. That's a sin. When you, when you do something that God says, don't do it, and you do it anyway. That's a sin. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Is laughing a sin? Is crying a sin? Is being happy a sin? Is being sad a sin? Is being angry a sin? Sometimes. Sometimes. A lot of them are sometimes, depending on if it's against or with God's will. Oh, that's a good thought. Did you hear what he said? He said sometimes. Can you say it louder? If you're, it depends, you can, he's saying you can be angry and it wouldn't be a sin if you're with God's will and you could be angry and be a sin if you are against God's will. That's a very good thought because that's exactly what I wanted to talk to us today about. Because it is possible to be angry and not sin. Did you know in the Bible, the apostle Paul, when he wrote a letter to the people called the Ephesians, He wrote, I'm going to open it up right now and read it to you. He said, in your anger, do not sin. What that means is when you get angry, don't sin. So that would be, how could you, how could you be angry, but not sin? That's hard, isn't it? Let me tell you something. Let me sh- let me tell you a story out of my own life. A couple weeks ago, I was at my daughter's house. She just lives down the road. And she has four boys. One boy's name is Roman. And Roman is, how old is he? Ten. He was here last night. Ronan, right. And Roman was here last night for the party. And he was, he's ten. And then Alexander, my other grandson, is nine. And then Winston is eight. And then Taylor, the youngest one, you girls were helping last night with Taylor. How old is Taylor? He's two. No, he's only two. Remember, Eli was five. But Taylor is only two. Well, Taylor gets upset when his older brothers don't do what he wants them to do. And he gets mad. And sometimes Taylor gets mad at his mom because Taylor does not like to go to bed when he's being told to go to bed. 
And there's times when he does not want to go to bed. And he's mad. And he's two years old. And he gets mad. And he's, now, now. And he picks up one of his toys and throws it at his mom. And she tries to help him to understand that it's not right. But I was there a couple weeks ago. And he was just angry. And he was being mean. And I finally said, excuse me. And I went back to his bedroom. And I said, you get in your bed now. <gasps> get in your bed now. And he got into bed. <laughs> I said, Taylor, it is okay to be angry. But it is not okay to be mean when you're angry. You cannot be mean to your mommy or to your daddy or to your brothers or sisters, even though you're angry. It's okay to be angry. You can be upset. But do not be mean. Well, I want to tell you a story out of the Bible about a time when somebody was angry out of the Bible. You are. There's a book called Matthew. But there's a story in the Bible about a time when Jesus was angry, but he did not sin. And I want to tell it to you. It's a really cool story. Jesus and his friends came to the temple in Jerusalem so that they could pray, so that they could worship God, so that they could offer sacrifices. And when he got into the temple, there were people there who were selling animals. There were people there who literally had tables set up with money. And you know what, is, what was happening? The people in there, back in that time, to worship God, you had to bring an animal and then have it sacrificed by the priest. They had to kill the animal. Well, the priest would go, oh, this one has a little wart right here on its ear. We can't have this one. You'll have to go buy one of them over there and then bring one of those. So the guys would bring their own animals to the temple to have the sacrifice. And the priest would go, oh, this one's not any good. You can't sacrifice that one. But we have some good animals over there. You can go buy one. Or people would bring their money to make their offering at church, at the temple. And the priest would say, oh, you can't use that money. You have to use the holy money. Go over to that table over there. And these guys will exchange the money so that you can get some holy money so that you can do it for your offering. Well, what Jesus saw was that they were cheating these people. They were stealing from them. And it wasn't fair and it wasn't good and it wasn't honoring God. And Jesus got mad. You know why? He said, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer. And you're turning it into a place where thieves stay. You're turning it into a place where people get robbed. People try to come to church and to worship God. And what you're doing is you're stealing from them. And he got so angry. He literally went and he got a whip. And he started going, get out of here. Get out of here. And he threw the tables over. And he said, get these animals out of here. Get these birds out of here. This is going to be a place where people pray. And then you know what happened after that? People who were sick, people who were blind, people who were crippled, all came to Jesus and he began to heal them. And God was glorified in that place. But that wasn't sinning for him to get that angry. Because he was angry that they were dishonoring God. And he was angry that they were stealing from the poor people who were trying to come and worship God. And so it's possible for us to be angry 
and not sin, which is what the Bible tells us. So the next time you have something go wrong at your house and you get upset, it's okay to be upset, but don't sin. Okay? Let me pray with you guys. Jesus, bless these kids. Help them, Lord, to learn how to walk in a way that honors you and gives glory to you. Help them to learn from your example that it's okay to be angry. And you can be angry and still not do anything wrong. And praise you, Father. Thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, are you guys going back? I think you're, go- you're going back to your class, I think. I don't see Miss Tammy. So, yeah, she's back there. So you guys can go back to your classroom, okay? Thank you guys for being so attentive. I appreciate it. Well, that story that I just shared with the kids comes out of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And um, what we're going to be looking at this morning is just a little bit past that. It's Mark chapter 12 and the first 12 verses. And this is a story about a vineyard. Um, I want to read, first of all, the story, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables that he is Jesus. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others from the, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come And destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now, we have just read this completely out of context. You, you haven't read what's before. and there's, a, a, there's he and him and they. and So to give us an understanding, we have to actually put this back in context. First of all, this uh, story happens during Holy Week. Okay? If you go back to chapter uh, 11, the very first part of chapter 11... 
This is when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey and all the people are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they have the palm branches and they put their cloaks down on the ground. And it's, it's Palm Sunday. And then Jesus leaves at the end of his at the end of the day and goes back out to Bethany. And then he comes back the next day and he comes back out to Bethany and then he comes back in on Tuesday. So Tuesday of Holy Week is when this happened. Now, in order to, again, understand what's going on, we have to back up. So if you'll back up with me, go to chapter 11, verse 27. Now, remember, this is Tuesday morning of Holy Week. Monday was when um, Jesus cleared the temple. Tuesday, he comes back in and it says, and they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and his followers. And Jesus was walking in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, the chief priests were the members of the Sanhedrin, the governing body of all of Jerusalem. It's like the Supreme Court, if you will, of the nation of Israel. So the chief priests, the ones who are in charge, who run everything, the scribes, the scribes are people who are, who study the law. They know the law backwards, forwards, inside and out. They interpret the law whenever there's a question about, uh, about how the law should be operated. And then elders, which are leaders of the congregations. So priests, the, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, Come to Jesus as he's walking through the temple. And they say to him, who do you think you are? The words in the Bible are, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave this authority for you to do this? You see, from their perspective, a rabbi, which is what Jesus is being presented as to the world, a rabbi is trained by another rabbi. And that rabbi, once the student, once the Talmud has been sufficiently trained and raised up, the rabbi releases that Talmud, the student, to become a rabbi in his own stead and to gather his own Talmudim, his own students around him. So their perspective is somebody told you you had the authority to do this. So who was it that gave you the authority to do this? And so Jesus looks at them. These are the leaders of the church. These are the leaders of the nation of Israel. And he says, I'll ask you a question. You answer me. And then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And they apparently said, sure, let's do this. So Jesus looked at him and he said, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they confer among themselves. A picture they pull away from Jesus and his disciples. So they get in a little huddle and they're talking. They're going, huh. Um, if we say it was from heaven, then he's going to ask us why we didn't believe him. And if we say that it was from man, the people are going to rise up against us because they thought he was a prophet. So they come back to Jesus. So they go, we don't know. And Jesus says, okay, you didn't answer my question. I'm not going to answer your question. 
Let's go on. And he literally, that's what he says. He says, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. We have an agreement. You answer my question, I'll answer your question. You didn't answer my question, I don't have an obligation to answer yours. And then it says, chapter 12, verse 1, so then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Now, the them there was not the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The them were the disciples and the surrounding people. So Jesus is in the temple courts, probably in Solomon's colonnade, which is an area where teaching would have taken place. It's also the area where all of the merchandising was going on the day before. And Jesus then begins to speak a parable. Well, what is a parable? It's a story. It's a story. Um, I'm sorry? A story with a lesson. A parable has a, is a story with a lesson. This particular story, scholars tell us, was not just a story with a lesson, but it was an allegory. Does anybody know what the word allegory means? It's where uh, it's a story where the the, uh, the characters in the story and things in the story represent. A real story. Exactly. Okay. An allegory is a story or a poem or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, usually a moral or a political meaning. Much like Pilgrim's Progress. Yes. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. Okay. So scholars tell us that this parable of Jesus, that he says in response after he's been challenged by the leaders of the, of, the, of, the, of the Jewish nation and he refuses to answer their question about his authority, he tells this parable, which is an allegory. We just read the parable, so we don't need to reread it, but we do need to break it down because if indeed this is an allegory, then what does it mean? What are these parts? Now, before we even break that down, we need to look at one other thing. Read with me again verse 1 in chapter 12. He began to speak to the people in parables. And he said, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. This is a very interesting story that he's telling. Why? Because if you turn to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, Isaiah comes right after Psalms and then Solomon and Ecclesiastes and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, Isaiah chapter 5, and it's verses 1 through 7. Let me read to you this prophecy that Isaiah Read, uh, pro proclaimed to the people of Israel that would have been very familiar to all the people standing in the temple on the day that Jesus was confronted by the leaders of the, of the Jews. Isaiah wrote, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, wild grapes are sour, unusable for the purpose that they are being grown. 
Verse three. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard or to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. In other words, I remove the protection around it. It shall be devoured. And the word devoured can also be grazed over by animals. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be not pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that the rain will not rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold, he found bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness. But behold, He found an outcry instead. So this passage out of Isaiah was very familiar to the people of Israel. So for Jesus to start this parable in the temple courts after being confronted by the leaders of the Jews and to use that imagery, there was a man who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower for security and storage and leased it tenant tenants and went into another country. Almost all of that is Isaiah chapter five. So they knew exactly what he was saying about when he said a vineyard, because everyone knew that the vineyard was the nation of Israel, the people of God. The owner of the vineyard in Jesus's parable thus has to be God. The tenants of the vineyard, without naming them, have to be the ones who have been put in charge to care for the nation of Israel, the people of God, to bring about righteousness, to bring about holiness. And the servant This is interesting. The servants who were mistreated were the prophets who came to the people of God, proclaiming that there was calamity coming because you're not living the way you're supposed to live. When Israel, when Isaiah prophesied, it was before the Babylonian um, deportation. It was before the destruction of Jerusalem. So he was proclaiming, folks, A time is coming if you don't straighten up and start doing what you were originally ordained to do. God is going to remove the hedge of protection from around you and you're going to become nothing. And everything that you think is all glorious and beautiful and wonderful, this beautiful temple, gone. Scholars will tell us that the servant who is struck in the head, that Jesus was alluding to the beheading of John the Baptist. But what's interesting, look in verse, uh, where is it now? Verse six. Then the owner still had one other to send, a beloved son. Look at that phrase, beloved son. Turn to Mark chapter one, verse 11. Mark chapter one. Verse 11. 
At the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, a spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Turn now to Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And I'm going to read 2 through 7. After six days, Jesus took with himself Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed him, overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So when Jesus tells this parable about the nation of Israel and the bad tenants, the leaders over the nation who are not bringing about the good grapes, but the wild grapes, or in this case, they're not giving God any due. He says, I send finally the beloved son. Without saying it, Jesus is saying, God ultimately sent me. Finally, God, the owner, sent Jesus to them, the leaders, the tenants, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said one to another, this is the heir. Come. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now, (laughs) Jesus, without saying it, because this is an allegory, is telling the people around him, specifically his disciples, but all the people within earshot, I'm about to die. And it'll be at the hands of the leaders of the people of Israel because they have rejected everything about God and God is about to do something because look at the next part of this as Jesus is speaking this parable he then says what will the owner verse 9 what will the owner of the vineyard do he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others and then he says something really weird He says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, that doesn't seem to work with a vineyard story. What in the world is this idea of a stone that builders reject becoming a cornerstone and that it's God's doing and it is marvelous? Well, Again, Jesus is quoting another passage of scripture here. It is Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And this is what that says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Wow. That's an exact quote. So what is this cornerstone, this stone that became the cornerstone? First of all, what is a cornerstone? Does anybody know any building Experience people? It's 
straightness of the law. Exactly. It is the foundation or the, 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 the very first part of a building that is put in place. And these, the masons have to make sure that it is perfectly plumb, vertical, and perfectly horizontal, level. Okay? It has to be perfectly plumb and perfectly level. The reason being, every other stone or rock or brick that's put in place has to be in alignment with this. Otherwise, the building is, in, is unstable. Okay? So, a cornerstone is the foundation on which everything else is built. So, Jesus brings this idea of a stone that's been rejected by the builders becoming a cornerstone. And it was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous. How does this apply to this whole story of God bringing condemnation to the leaders of Israel and wrenching from them the authority that they have and giving it to someone else and that Jesus is about to die? Well, to understand that, you have to point back to Psalm 118, but to understand Psalm 118, you have to understand that it actually points back to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Because remember I told you, Isaiah did his prophecy before the Babylonian deportation, before the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed, it was burned, it was totally destroyed. The, the, the wall of Jerusalem was knocked down and literally left desolate. Now, imagine, it said in, 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 the, um, in the Isaiah one, that the wall would be taken down, the hedge would be removed, it would be trampled and be grazed upon, okay? It be, literally becomes uh, a, a, just a, a wild place again. But when the Babylonians deported the Jews, they brought in other people to live there. And those people had to establish for themselves places to live. Well, that city of Jerusalem had been decimated, burned by the Babylonians, destroyed. So these people then had to rebuild to have houses. What did they use? The existing rubble from all of the wall and from the, the temple and all of the other stuff. So they literally took all these stones and rocks and built their dwelling places. And they would have gone through the pile of rubble looking for the best that they could use. Things that were usable. So the builders rejected other stones. They selected these stones to build their dwelling places in Jerusalem after the deportation. So when the prophet, when, when uh, whoever wrote Psalm 118 was talking about this stone that the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone of the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the deportation. Because they had to, again, have a cornerstone to build the temple and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was declaring to the religious leaders that he was the cornerstone. That God the Father was about to do something completely new. That they saw him as valueless. They rejected him in the same way that the people rebuilding the city of Jerusalem had rejected, I mean, had chosen stones for their cornerstone of the, what was left after everyone had rejected these piles of rocks. So without answering them, Jesus 
answered the question, by what authority do you do all of this? Because he said, I do it by the authority of God Almighty who has ordained all of this. And it says, after he tells them that story, the leaders of the nation of Israel were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they just left him and went away. Now this is Tuesday. By Friday morning, They've got him arrested and heading towards a cross. But again, we know the rest of the story. Because Jesus is the cornerstone from which God built an entirely new thing. That the kingdom of God is built on the death and resurrection of Christ. And that the 12 apostles now became, if you will, the Sanhedrin of the new people of God. And that God has since, over the last 2,000 years, built a kingdom that brings glory to God through the righteousness and holiness of the people of God. Because one of the things that Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount was, you should live your life in such a way that when the people around you see your good deeds, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. So your responsibility, lo, these 2,000 years later, after, after the founding of the Christian church, your responsibility is to live in such a way that you produce holiness and righteousness. In, in the words of Isaiah, you want to be a good grape, not a wild grape or a sour grape. Because if you end up being a sour grape or a wild grape, what's the end? You don't have God in your back supporting you and defending you. God will take action and you will be cast aside and he will put in place someone who will do for him what he needs done. Now, that's not a threat. That's simply a statement of fact. We sang all this morning, build your kingdom here. God, you are God. You are crowned king. You are, you, there is no other name that we, by which men should be saved. God will take care of us. He's our healer. He is our, our power. He's our strength. But there is one thing that's needed on your side of the equation. And that's you choose to serve God. Because each one of us has a will and we can choose wrongly. And that's the only criterion for, your, for having blessing in your life. Do you choose to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you submit yourself to him? If so, then you do the things that he tells you to do. I could go on and on and on. I've always read this for years and years and years and years and years, almost 50 years now. I have read this parable and never fully understood why in the world it was there and what was it about. But there's power there. If you look at it and understand the truth that's there, Jesus was answering the question, what authority do you have to do these things? I got the authority of God Almighty. That's what I got. I'm the beloved son. And I am here to start a new thing because you people are being rejected. Powerful, powerful words. Let's pray. Father God, help us. We are coming down literally the wire to Easter. 
Help us, Father, to recognize what you did for all of humanity, but especially what you did for us. Thank you for allowing Jesus, your beloved son, to die on the cross so that you could raise him to new life, so that we could have relationship with you and cleansing from our own life, from our own sin. We give you praise and honor and glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on up, Elsie.